Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, and I'm here in Fire's DC headquarters today with my boss and Fire President and CEO, Greg Lukianoff. Greg, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're here to kind of talk about the coddling of the American mind one year after its publication. Yeah. The paperback edition just came out. We just learned it was number nine on the New York Times bestsellers list for paperbacks. Yeah. Something we weren't really expecting. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I continue to be amazed how many people are buying the book still and, and how, um, how often I get you know, approach to talk about it. And it, it's it's also really funny when uh, friends of mine, you know, people will recommend the book by this, you know, and they're like, oh, I actually know the know, know the author. Yeah. What has some, <laughs> been some of the most surprising or interesting feedback you've received about the book in the past year? Um, surprising or interesting. It was just, uh, you know, finding out that people had read it in other countries, for example, and were excited and inspired about it was a little bit of a little bit of a surprise. Yeah, we've learned it's been translated into a couple, a lot of languages. A lot actually. of languages. Um, we've we've given rights in um, two different kinds of, of Chinese. It's, it's, it's we sold a copy in Korea. Um, you know, for example, um, it, it's translated into Brazilian Portuguese, I believe. You know, like it just it's been selling pretty well uh, yeah. uh, globally. One of the things that I find interesting is that they create new covers <laughs> for, yes. for the books in different places. Where This, of course, if you're listening to this in podcast version, we, we have a video. You can find it at YouTube at youtube.com slash the fire or Greg's holding up a, what is that, the the UK edition? This is the UK paperback and this is the hardcover for the US and you might note and listeners, uh, the UK paperback is tiny and this is the one thing that John and I were sort of you know, we're, ha- we're happy at the success of the book in the UK, but they made it so that, you know, um, Lilliputians can read it. Like the text is so, <laughs> so so incredibly small. And my mom's British, so I know they're not actually smaller people. Um, so the uh, but yeah, this is the, the, the paperback version of, the, of it, the UK version. And do you get any say in the design of those international editions or does Penguin kind of? Um, this was funny that they. Uh, they sent us the copy for this. This one has got a, b- a bunch of cotton balls, like a uh, packing material, as in like it's kind of like you're protecting your kids using um, bubble wrap, essentially. So that's kind of what the image means. And John and I were both like, Meh, you know, like we we and they were like, no, nah, we really like it. And it, we got we got some nominal say in it. But a lot of times, as, as even happened with the title, I'm like, well, I actually prefer to go with this thing. Like, no. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'd, this might be interesting or not interesting uh-huh. for our viewers or listeners. I mean, the process of just kind of putting out a book is not just writing the book. Yeah. It's also giving advice, input on the marketing of the book. So, yep. And the title of the book is it's not something the authors always have 100% yep. say in. The Coddling of the American Mind was not initially what you wanted to call it. Nope. I want to call it disempowered. I, I, I still think that that conveys more of what um, you know I was trying to say to a degree for these students because – and this is the Atlantic. Yeah. Well, article. no, actually, the, the Atlantic article I wanted to call something much more boring, called "Arguing Towards Misery," which yeah. I now accept is a terrible title. Um, or, but it did convey exactly what I was trying to say: was essentially that we're um, engaging in intellectual patterns that uh, practically guarantee increased anxiety and depression. You know, um, so arguing towards misery at least was more precise than coddling the American mind. 
Um, but come the um, and so much of the argument in response to the the article really was that was critical of it was really just taking on the title and that was really frustrating to me because I didn't want it's like these are and basically transferring coddling into spoiled it's like these are not we're not talking about spoiled kids um, and that's one of the reasons why I was like absolutely not this will not be the title of the of the book now that we've signed uh, the the book deal to do it uh, to do a book about it and we signed the book deal under the title disempowered um, because I like the idea um, of explaining to students to and, and and to parents that really not what we're saying is so much that you're like we're not saying that people are spoiled we're saying that essentially things that allow you to function and be happy in the adult world are things that increasingly, um, you know, parents, teachers are undermining, whether they know they're doing that or not. So I, I think that's kind of more what we're doing to this generation is we're disempowering them to a degree in a way that's going to make them sort of predictably miserable. But at the last minute, they decided, nope, coddling the American mind or nothing. Yeah, well, it's the Atlantic that picked the title. Mm-hmm. And then the Atlantic article was such a success that yeah. publishers I'm, are like, "Well, we need, we don't want to lose equity." In that yeah, I, I, I'm I'm stuck with it, you know. Um, the uh, and I we do in the book try to explain what we mean by coddling. We actually added like a little subsection saying that all we mean are the negative consequences of overprotection. Yeah, I think coddling the definition definitionally, I think it yeah. fits what you're arguing. Absolutely, yeah, it does. And I th- I think I'm more of a booster for the title yeah. than you are. And a, lo- and a lot of people love the title. So when it, when I, when I bring up not liking the title, people are like what? But it's partially because you end up in all these meta arguments, like is this coddling or not? I'm like, well, it wasn't even like the title we chose. Well, coddling is something that happens to people regardless of whether they want it to happen to them. Yeah, well, it's, it's done to them. Yeah, yeah, it's done to them. It's not. We're not saying that kids on their own volition are weak, or you know, young adults are necessarily weak. We're saying that there there are certain institutions that are built up around them yep. that don't let them empower themselves to learn certain skills in life. So, I mean, you said you wanted to call it disempowered. Yeah. What is it, what are some of the things that people as they're coming up through adolescence and young adulthood need to be empowered to learn themselves that is they're currently being disempowered by the institutions that's around practically everything. I mean, like, and that's something that, you know, John, um, one of the, some of, one of the questions that we really wanted to research um, after the book came out was like how much of these phenomena that we talk about and of coddling the American mind are going on outside of the United States. And as best we can tell, and, and John has a lot of research for this on the coddling website, um, <clears throat> a lot of these trends are at least in the Anglosphere, at least in the English-speaking world. And that's one of the reasons why we focus a lot in the book on, on things like parenting, because um, and this was a little experiment that, that John started having us do when we would give talks together. Is just ask people to raise their hands when, how old were they when they were first let out? Mm-hmm. As in, like, when were you first allowed to go down to, like, the corner store by yourself or go outside by yourself? Um, and for people, you know, my age, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer um, and older and, and I'm somewhat younger too. The answer is usually, like, f- somewhere between five and seven. Um, yeah. And for people who are uh, closer to the generation uh, to Gen Z or, or or late millennials, like ninety or or, or after, um, the answer was like twelve or thirteen. Which which and this would happen in almost every room that we talked. And occasionally we'd have one outlier, and we'd ask like, to "Tell us about what your, your situation." And, and a lot of times it was, "Well, actually, I grew up in the Philippines, and mm. you know, or something in some other country." Um, we've, uh, particularly for the kind of students who go to these elite colleges, we've really undermined um, childhood. Uh, we've overstructured it to a d- degree that the, um, 
the sort of uh, natural kind of um, uh, interaction between your, you know, your friends in your neighborhood. Free um, play without parental supervision. Free, I remember yeah. I lived near a forest and uh, in a park. And I would go out in the morning and get into all sorts of trouble with yeah, my friends in the sure. forest or in the park, but you know nothing that was gonna hurt me. I mean, although I guess I sure. could fall out of a treehouse and you know, yeah. but and, you know, not, we weren't taking dramatic risks. Yeah, uh, doing it. it was, we lived in a very safe neighborhood, but it was through those experiences—no parents around, setting up sports games ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, coming up with unique scenario play. I don't know what it was, yeah. but that's how we how I became socialized. And meanwhile, that's the way mediated kids, problems kids have forever. It, mm-hmm. It's partially through free play and unstructured time and figuring out some of these interactions on on your own. And it's as if we didn't we thought we could just eliminate that with no consequence. So when you look at the you know the childhood of a lot of a lot of kids who go to the go to elite colleges, they're structured from 6 a.m. to bedtime. And what why is that? Is that because they parent the parents feel they need to in order for them to get into these elite college, yeah. come from wealthy backgrounds? Or is it out of fear uh, that there are a lot of problems in the world and they want to insulate their children more or less, whether it's <laughs> crime or I don't know? Yeah, well, the answer is yes, um, <laughs> because because it's both. Um, that we, we write a lot about um, the perception of sort of dangerousness. Uh, why in a generation that's possibly the safest in human history, we're so obsessed with safety? Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely, um, there is a major disconnect between how dangerous the country was. Like when we were, you know, I was, when I was, most of my childhood was in the, in the 80s. And I was, you know, that was approaching the height of murder for the country for all time in, in the 80s. And every year it seemed to get, like, seemed to get a little bit worse. But we weren't as paranoid about, mm-hmm. you know, child abduction or a, a lot of these things. Well, you talk in the book about how it was about around that time that they started putting missing kids in yeah. milk cartons. Yep. And you also started to get, 24-7 news cycle yep. that tend to focus on the more yep. unsavory but it, but aspects. But at the same time, statistically, it really was getting worse. You know, mm-hmm. like the, the the amount of violent crime, for example, was continuing to go up, and it would go up until about 1991 in some places, a little later in, in other places. But it's been plummeting since 1991, 92, depending on where you live. And it's as if our ideas of childhood haven't really caught up with that. In fact, we're more paranoid in our parenting style uh, when it comes to safety issues than we were, say, in the 1980s when things were much more much more dangerous, flat out. Um, I do think a big part of it, and we do talk about this in the book, but I, I think we probably should have talked about it even more, about the um, the, you know, the pressure to get into some of these elite colleges. We uh, just had the admission scandal. Oh, yeah. Where people admission. are now buying their – maybe that's happened in the past. Well, the, but the, the admission scandal was, it was definitely something that really should have brought home to people how um, – how much of a premium is placed on getting into some of these swanky schools now in a way that they, you know, and the lengths that elite families will go to get their kids yeah, to these schools, to get them an international airport. That was a joke from the Simpsons. You know, <laughs> you know, it, it was a um, Yale l- looking at the uh, qualifications of a character played by Rodney Dangerfield and like, I'm sorry, sir, but with a, with a, a student of this low qualifications, you need to get us a, and he looks at the chart, an international airport in, <laughs> in order to, um, in order to get, get him in. Um, yeah, and and the so definitely some part of it is the idea that um, the fear essentially that if they don't get into one of these fancy schools, um, you're going to be kicked out of the upper class essentially. Like you're you're not going to you're not going to be able to compete, and that of course seems seems nightmarish to people. Well, let's try and connect some of the dots here for our listeners and viewers who perhaps haven't read the book before. So we're seeing this phenomenon of overprotective yep. parenting 
preventing their kids or insulating their kids from some of the free play. Oh, and I do want to say one important point here. We are very clear in the book that we're talking about the problems facing the kind of kids who tend to go to the more elite colleges and bottom half and quartile of the economic ladder, completely different situations. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I always feel it's really necessary to say that because like there are great books like um, uh, 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 Robert Putnam's Our Kids, which I recommend kind of to everybody to talk about the problems faced by uh, lower lower quartile kids. So you're saying lower, low, kids in lower quartile income brackets yeah. tend to have- They more face this, very different kinds of problems. Yeah, very different kinds of problems. Yeah. But you know the problems- that we're talking about with the more affluent members of society. Generally, it's yeah. overstructured time. You got cello lessons followed by soccer <laughs> practice, right. followed by tutors, yeah. and you know, no time to go outside, yeah. play with your friends, learn how to mediate differences, solve problems. And then they're going off to college, college yeah. having spent all of their adolescence with their parents kind of structuring their time and and, and, and their high school teachers yeah. like and I think partially you know um, we, we we looked into this and we couldn't find really uh, brazen examples of it but definitely with the very you know the very appropriate increased concern about um, anti-bullying uh, like um, uh, that when I always emphasize this I'm like anti the anti-bullying sort of movement of the, like the last 20 years it, my attitude about it was it's about time. We didn't need to be as physically abusive of each other as we were when I was kids. And definitely there was like powerful hope of homophobia. And this was all all real stuff. But the negative side effect of being much more concerned about the interpersonal relationships of, of kids is that it once again leads to a situation in which conflict is intermediated by um, uh, K through uh, K through twelve professors and K through twelve administrators by authority figures by authority figures, and so what you end up with is a situation in which there's been very little unintermediated uh, conflict in a lot of these kids' lives, and this is re- repeated again in the way we set up higher education, which has you know administrators to be um, aware of you what you're doing, sort of. Uh, sh- sort of 24-7, which is why, you know, we, we joke, but we were also kind of serious that our one stock tip that came out of writing the book was invent, uh, invest in human resources companies. Because what we are hearing is as these students are hitting, um, you know, quote unquote, the real world, whereas there was once kind of a sense that they were going to, oh, these, these kids will never make it in the real world. Uh, my response has always been, or at least mostly been, um, no, they're going to change it. And yeah. and what's what at least what we're hearing, and we're not. It'll be we'll be interested to see if we can get data to support this. But what we're hearing from companies is they are um, they are seeing a, a crop of students that, for normal sort of interpersonal tensions, will rather than sort of sort it out with their coworker, they'll go to human resources or they'll go to somebody as an authority figure to try to fix it. And that's scary for all sorts of reasons, not just the mental health of the individual you know, employer, student, but also kind of like that's not how we handle these things. The health society. of the organization yeah. and the relationships with their coworkers. So we're getting, we get to college. I yep. want to come back to that point. We get to college. Students have had their almost entire lives, elite affluent students yeah. at elite colleges have had their entire lives mediated uh, by an authority figure. They get there, they hear a speaker they don't like. Uh, there's yeah. a student group tabling on campus that they yeah. don't like. They go to administrators and request, in some cases, censorship or action of some yeah. sort. And this is how you originally connected with John, right? Yeah. Well, in 2013, 2014, for the first time in my career, and I've said this in so many interviews, I don't want to belabor it too much. But prior to 2013, 2014, in, in my 18-year career, um, students had always been good on free speech. And then suddenly, in 2013, 2014, they were suddenly 
um, demanding that speakers be kicked off campus. So there were invited. generational shift. Yeah, it was a massive generational shift, and it was extremely sudden. And a lot of the book is trying to uh, trying to figure out like where that uh, where that generational shift uh, came from. Mm-hmm. So you talk about there's a, how there's a connection between that generational shift and rising rates of anxiety, depression, yeah. and, and even suicide. Yeah. So where does that connection lie? Well, that that came. Um, just from the observation uh, that uh, when I was, you know, that comes from a very personal place, which mm-hmm. I've talked about before, but bears repeating. In 2007, 2008, and I talk about this in grisly detail in the book, I went through a very bad depression. And I started, uh, the thing that really helped me long term for this was studying cognitive behavioral therapy, which is all an approach, um, which is primarily an approach of looking at your own exaggerated thoughts um, and getting in the habit of essentially talking back to them. You know, like as in, um, you know, something bad happens to you and uh, and this was someone that I had all the time, like something slightly wrong goes in, in your life. I'm going to be fired and I'm going to end up in the bread line, you know, like and I always had this kind of like it's all going to fall apart, you know, kind you know, of or, thing. You, or a date goes poorly and you're going to be front loan forever. Yeah, you're going to be low. Exactly. You know, and we all have these kind of exaggerated thoughts. Um, but interestingly, you know, they found that if you can sort of um, – uh, get in the habit of sort of talking back to them, you can decrease your experience of anxiety and depression. And this was life-changing for me. And meanwhile, while I'm trying to teach myself, don't catastrophize, don't overgeneralize, don't engage in binary uh, thinking about stuff, I was watching on campus administrators who seemed to be exemplifying mm-hmm. um, you know, catastrophizing or binary thinking or mind reading or all these things that I was trying to teach myself not to do, being like, wow, it se- really seems like we're teaching a generation to do this stuff by example. And I got, th- got to think about this a lot more and realized that this sort of paranoid style of parenting, for example, it does lead to basically saying actually catastrophizing is good. At least we can't think of any downside for it. Actually mm-hmm. thinking of the worst outcome is good. All this kind of stuff. And, you know, my thought at the time was, thank goodness students don't seem to be buying this. And then suddenly in 2013, 2014, you have this crop of students um, demanding disinvitations, demanding new speech codes, all this stuff. Uh, but at the same time, couching it in the language of medicalization, of basically saying, like, because we'll be mentally harmed mm-hmm. if um, this person uh, steps foot on my campus or or makes the following argument, et cetera, et cetera. Trauma. They'll be traumatized. They'll, they'll be traumatized. And this was, the, this was you know, not unheard of, but, but new in terms of the scope and scale that I was seeing of it. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I brought it to John, because I was kind of like, wow, like we seem to actually be doing the exact opposite what a psychologist would tell somebody to do. Yeah. Not that we're not saying, you know, you really you shouldn't fixate on this pain. You shouldn't you, you know, you shouldn't concentrate all of your attention on it, uh, you know, um, Whereas it seemed like on campuses they were telling people, oh, by the way, fixate on that. Find as small of a slight as you can, and that's actually a secret sign of aggression towards you, for example. And so we shouldn't be surprised then when these students uh, or professionals in the workforce go then to an authority figure and say help because they've been told all their lives that they're – Perhaps irrational thoughts are not so irrational after all. Yeah, there's something you should be deeply concerned. Well, yeah, and that's why you know one of the scenarios I give in the book is the idea of going to see to, to explain how I think of this is ha- have a mythical sort of student going to the student counseling center 
and um, you know, explaining that she's been feeling a little blue and a little down, and having the counselor be like, "Oh my goodness, you feel blue and down. You must be in very great. You know, you're feeling anxious. You must be in very great danger. Where can we hide? You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, no, no, no. That like that's 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 not what you do. But when it comes to the intolerance for different political points of view, for example, and that's one of the reasons why in the book we talk about the six causal threads. One of them is a topic that's you know very close to the heart of both me and me and John. One of the reasons why we became friends in the first place, which is political polarization. Mm-hmm. And I do have sympathy for the fact that um, for the unfortunately really true situation is we've gotten so good at self sorting, um, both in terms of what we do on the internet, but also what we do physically. Um, these are people who might have grown up in a bubble where they weren't used to hearing people with radically different points of view from them. Um, and not being particularly tolerant of them. Um, well, why would they? Because if you're if you're in an echo chamber about this, those other people are actually evil. They're not they're they're, they're not um, people of goodwill. They're either stupid or evil. And so I do think that some of the isolation from each other, and certainly the hostility that's revved up um, in the past several years, makes the, the the lack of tolerance for political points of view that you disagree with even more intense. I was just uh, recalling as you were you're mentioning that. A, uh, I don't know, one of the offices of diversity and inclusion at Indiana University Southeast. You know, have you seen these language guides that go around universities sometimes issue like this is biased language, this, you know, and here's how you should respond to it? Yeah, making a sad face because y- yes, and w- w- what is it now is kind of so what does it say? Well, so it recommends at Indiana University Southeast that if someone says offensive, that you respond with ouch, like literally the word ouch. And I read that and I thought, wow. That's exactly what Greg and John were talking about in their book, like the medical, like the the idea that it's actually hurtful, like yeah. that it, it, it almost because ouch is your response to physical pain. Yeah, and now we're we're taught to use that in response to words that you find offensive. Yeah, and this is this is crazy. And I and and okay, so I'm going to talk about sticks and stones for a second because um, I have to because it makes me really it really frustrates me when I see this sort of willing or sometimes I think just people don't get what the sticks and stones mantra was for. Uh, they don't even know that it's a mantra because I, I've heard this sort of cliche all the time. It's like, we used to say sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. But now we know that's not true. Names do hurt you. And it's like, oh, for, crack, for God's sakes, if names never hurt anybody, you wouldn't have to come up with a catchy little rhyme. You teach children um, in order to help them deal with the fact the, 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 the mantra wouldn't even make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it, if you if names didn't actually hurt, but you have to create it in a society where you're expected to be able to live with people you dislike, to yeah. live with people, and go through the, the the unfortunate sort of normal childhood experience of sometimes being uh, having Pick kids time. be picked to you and and, yeah. and being being excluded. But sticks and stones don't break my bones, but names will never harm me. In terms of like the good it did for kids, excluded kids. And I was, you know, I was a pretty weird kid myself in a, like, um, for a lot of my childhood. And I was, I was definitely, you know, beaten up many, many, many a time. But the, uh, the empowerment that actually the idea of like repeating this to yourself, it's like, nope, your names can't harm me. Meanwhile, it seems like what we were telling students is not only can names harm you, they're even subtler ones that you may not have noticed that might be unintentional, but nonetheless are tiny forms of violence against you. And even worse, you should, should say, ouch. So the idea of saying, ouch, like it just makes it so much worse because it's kind of like, yes, make this automatic. Make it something where your mind can't really distinguish it between it and physical pain. It's just it's just such terrible advice. And that's kind of like one of the things, you know, also to really summarize kind of Bina Heights work together. 
um, a lot of it is kind of like stop giving students horrible dysfunctional advice and then being shocked that this isn't working out very well. Mm-hmm. So in 2000, what did the book, last year, 2000, yeah. what was last year, 18? Uh, no, <laughs> nobody knows anymore. I know. As, as you get older and older, the years just, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, to, I got to tell you, 2019 still sounds like the distant future in my head. I know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. We should have teleporters by now. But since the book came out, well, when the first article came out, yep. this was a problem that people were thinking was just on campus. And you had just mentioned that we're starting to see it yeah. uh, percolate in corporations and media, yeah. uh, which of course are corporations as well. Uh the book was the number one book recommended by Bloomberg business leaders yeah. after it first came out, which yep. I think says something about a what business leaders, well, one, are reading, what, what but why they're are. reading that, yeah. where their minds are at. Because anecdotally, we've heard that businesses are having a hard time adapting to the generational shift, some some good, some um, challenging, yeah. related to iGen or Gen Z. Yeah. So- what have you heard from business leaders? What are you thinking? I mean, I know your stock tip is to invest in HR companies. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, it, it tends to always be followed by, and I can't go on the record for this, you know, mm-hmm. and I and I hate to even give that kind of information sometimes because it's kind of like, I can't tell you who my sources are. But time and time again, you know, I have people talking about how their employees um, have, you know, in, in the most dramatic cases have turned the everyday work in some cases of, of helping other people, you know, people who work for nonprofits into sort of a daily drama about interpersonal relationships within the, within the office. That often now involve HR departments because they don't want to mediate them themselves. Which just sounds incredibly dysfunctional. Now I hope that this isn't why it's it's like, just, just like one of these things where there's that little glimmer of wanting to be proven right, you know, as, as someone who studied something for a really long time. Uh, but then ultimately as a human being, not wanting to be right, you know, like, and in this case, I hope it's subtle or I hope it's not as big of a deal as I'm afraid it is. But on the other part of my thinking is that if this is, uh, if the phenomena is bad as we've seen on campus, even if it's a fraction of this, mm-hmm. this is going to mean that some companies are going to go down due to sort of unparalleled internal strife because employees can't figure out ways to sort of mediate their own interpersonal reaction relationships without um uh without it being destructive yeah i wonder i mean has there been any studies on it's so recent there there almost couldn't be because like the first the first members of generation uh, uh z only born night really 1995 1996 mm-hmm. or later or have only recently started graduating so we're only getting anecdotal stuff i mean yeah, I'm, I'm reluctant to tell our listeners, you know, have you noticed a generational shift in the workplace? I, you know, email us, so to speak, at thefire.org. I mean, please don't reveal anything about your HR departments. Right? Yeah. But like, have you noticed a generational shift in which way? Good's it, good and bad. And by all means, if you haven't, tell us that, too. Yeah. Um, because that's interesting because mostly people are coming to me. I've, I'd, I'd actually talked to I've had some talks where I've spoken to HR people pretty uh, pretty exclusively. And um, yeah, and it's definitely is, it is a concern. It's like, what is what is what is the working environment going to be like when Gen Z hits the working environment? Now, what it might mean, given that we've seen a lot of these problems more clustered in elite colleges, it might mean hire more from the the great state schools that mm-hmm. we have, where, where we haven't seen this problem be anywhere as intense. That would actually be kind of a nice outcome if we mm-hmm. actually moved a little bit back from our 
um, weird hyper worship of the Stanford's and Harvard's and, and Princeton's and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, started uh, not necessarily preferring people from those schools quite as much. Um, that would actually probably be a good outcome. Yeah. So I'm curious to hear what our listeners think. Again, the email is so to speak at the fire.org. I want to move now to another change that we've noticed, or at least something that's been investigated more since the book came out, is how this is these phenomena are manifesting themselves or not internationally. Mm-hmm. You were just in Italy yeah. to talk about the book. Any sense of whether some of the same phenomena exist there? I know John was just in Australia and New Zealand and started to see some of these yeah. issues percolate there, but they have different dynamics there, for example. Sure. Uh, a lot of the schools are commuter schools, so you're not seeing right. the same thing happen on campus that you would in the United States where, everyone, where not everyone, a lot of people live on campus, especially at the elite schools. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and John has some really interesting data on this and some stories about it uh, on, on the coddling uh, website we called the coddling partially yeah, you the coddling.com yeah. you, you, you should watch the the video because we chose that title partially trying to sort of make light of the of, of the title which we've picked on many times so as best we can tell this is happening in the anglosphere in the english english speaking world um to a greater or lesser degree we've definitely seen some really intense versions of it on um, elite campuses in, in the united kingdom now the next question is: Is are these trends, and partially because we th- some of the things we use to describe why we think this is happening include phenomena that hit uh, uh, children across the world at m- roughly the same time, like like having access to to uh, social media in their pockets since they were very small, for example, mm-hmm. is, is one of the six causal threads that we talk about in the book. Political polarization, you know, is another one that we talk about that's surely gotten worse in, in the Anglosphere. Now, the next question is, is this happening in other countries that had similar technological shifts but have very different cultures? And so going to Italy, um, I was invited to Italy to uh, speak, at a, uh, speak at a conference invited by an Italian professor who um, teaches actually in, um, uh, in, in Nebraska, I believe. Uh-huh. Uh, and her, uh, her her friend from Spain, who they had an entirely different take on the book. Like they were most fascinated by the fact that we were talking about sort of bubbles, you know, um, safe spaces, so to speak. And they did this incredible exhibit, you know, all about um, different the concept of solitude in in, in, in yeah, American society. They say it's society. mostly an American phenomenon. Yeah, they 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 they, they, they were saying that solitude is essentially a a, a word um, that was given to the English language by Americans, more or less. And I don't know if that's I don't know if that's entirely true, but it was very interesting to hear from from an Italian perspective about how how intriguing the idea of solitude not being loneliness, loneliness being this idea of like it being a negative experience of being alone, whereas solitude is about being alone being a very positive experience and something that. You know, I, I think of solitude as, as, as great, great good. And it was, and to see such a different spin on the work that we've done at Fire, but also the work in the book, um, was fascinating to me. And I definitely want to just pick her brain endlessly about it. Do I know if some of the the, the other trends we're talking about in coddling are going on in Italy? I don't know. I think I needed to speak speak the language <laughs> better. Yeah, it's funny. I watched some video of the panel, and they had a real time translator yeah. for the the audience, which looked huge. It was that that was definitely a really humbling experience, and and I was just so 
um, humbled to find out that we had anything to do with inspiring the amazing professors who were involved in it. Mm-hmm. And and the, and the intellectual quality of the discussion um, at that conference was, was was great. If you if you speak Italian, <laughs> yeah. um, we should provide a link. Yeah, if you go to thecoddling.com, you can see some of, uh, I think, John's notes about yeah. some of his travels um, and some of the things he's observed in other countries. He notes that as far as he can tell, the Germanic and Scandinavian countries have not yet fall in, and I'm quoting here, for paranoid parenting and overprotection like the English-speaking countries. They still send their kids to forest schools and let kids play outside with friends unsupervised by age six. Uh, Lower levels of inequality and status anxiety have been credited with taking off some of the pressure that American parents place on children. Yep. There's a really great book about that with an unfortunately very boring title um, that talks about income inequality and its relationship between uh, status anxiety and paranoid parenting. I wish I could remember the name of it, but it's something like love and parenting and it needed a catchier. <laughs> Did you listen to it in yeah, audiobook yeah, form? Yeah, yeah, make sure that we have a link to it, though. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the full information uh, for it afterwards. Yeah, so it's a, it's on inequality in parenting. Um, it's I think it's yeah, I think it's called Love and Parenting and something something. Yeah, yeah I'm writing that. Just down not now. very memorable. So sorry. It's okay. Now, now t- talk about a memorable title, though. Um, a, a book about. Um, the focus on independence and cultivating um, a sense of independence among kids in Germany, which is an interesting the Achtung baby. It's called Achtung baby, yeah. which, which is like that's that's a title. So, what are the plans to kind of continue to examine this book and its themes moving forward? We have seen more research on some of these themes. Yeah, uh, we have seen when you first wrote the Atlantic article. Yeah. You were speculating that you might be seeing a rise sure. in anxiety, depression, and we were so hearing it, reports from campuses that this was the case. But that overwhelmed, that, yeah. um, you know, medical offices. Um, but that wasn't showing up in the data yet for, and that wasn't good enough for for John. To me, hearing from people on on the ground that this was happening was pretty persuasive. But still, yeah. it's not the same thing as data. And then you still had data. You had more data by the time this book came out. Mm-hmm. But since then, the data, and especially some of these trends internationally has become overwhelming mm-hmm. insofar as it's kind of corroborated, corroborated what we've long expected, correct? Mm-hmm. The, oh, sorry, say that again, sorry. So, so the data is kind of corroborated. You're seeing, finding more and more data that levels of anxiety and depression are going up. Yeah, particularly for young people. Um, and that there does seem to be some correlation between that and social media use. Um, general use of the internet, not, not so much, which wasn't really a surprise. We weren't as concerned about screen time. Um, and people playing video games, we weren't really expecting any negative effects when it comes to a lot of the phenomena we're talking about. But we do think that the um, sort of interpersonal uh, aggression that, that um, uh, social media makes so easy for like grade schoolers um, could surely uh, be a negative influence. Yeah. And what was it? There's, I'll, I'll try and copy it in the show notes here. There was an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education recently about, like I said, overwhelmed yeah. counseling centers. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know, is, is work on campus getting harder than it was and there's the burdens higher or is it, you know, something to do with the psychology that the book discusses? Well, it's, it's interesting because it's like, um, I felt the same way kind of like after we finished the 2015 article, which was sort of like, well, you know, that was interesting. Um, uh, what's next? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and part of like what's next in my mind is given that it's, you know, it's sold over 200,000 copies, I think at this point, you know, like it's, it's, re- it, it's, it, its goal was to reach a lot more people than we would normally reach, and it really overachieved on that. But now I want to see if we can harness the contacts we've made through this and the um, interest we've uh, gotten in this for good. Um, and 
the good that, of course, is most important to me as the president of FIRE is to see if we can turn this into something that can help reform the situation for free speech on campus. And one of the things that I've been really hitting hard it, when, I, when I'm when i faced, and I face particularly from conservatives, I hear this kind of like, oh, there's nothing to be done. You know, campuses don't believe in free speech anymore. It always sounds like really sort of over the top to me. And the reason why it's frustrating is because I know that basic things haven't been done yet. Um, and which that's one of the reasons why I came up with a list of sort of five easy reforms um, that universities can make, that, that you should be nagging your university president to make. And, you know, chief among them are things like uh, tell them to obey the law, tell them to commit, recommit to freedom of speech, tell them to stand up for their professors and students, not just um, when they get in trouble, but right away and loudly. That makes a huge difference. And then simple things like teach about um, freedom of speech and academic freedom um, at the beginning of at the beginning of orientation, which it's shocking that most universities don't do that, but they don't. And then finally, collect data on the state of of uh, the health of freedom of speech and free inquiry on campus. And I'm really I'm trying to focus sort of laser like on on that because uh, I think that there's a lot of concern that something's gone wrong in higher education, and I think to a degree something has. And they, that also includes things that aren't really fire issues, but nonetheless, I think a lot about like cost. You know, for example, mm-hmm. I, I think a lot about. Um, but for the issues that we care about, we haven't even really scratched the surface yet of, of basic reforms that need to take place. And I know that there's lots of interest in fixing things, some pessimistic, some optimistic, but not really a battle plan for where to start. And I think this is where you should start with these five basic common sense, reasonable reforms. Yeah. What more have we learned about political polarization on and off campus since the book came out? There was this hidden tribe study. Oh, yeah, yeah. That might be worth touching on. It, it just seems like it. I think anyone who reads the news, watches the news, knows that we're at a maybe an inflection point, or maybe we've passed it. I don't know. The Hidden Tribes study is amazing, and I really recommend it to everybody. Um, you know, you definitely have a link to it as well. Yeah. Um, it, it's super interesting, and actually, when I first read it, um, my first tweet about it was, "This so well con- comports with my own experience and point of view that I'm suspicious of it," <laughs> um, because it's just it's too it's too on the nose. And there was a stat in it that got a little bit poo-pooed by some of my, um, you know, good uh, friends on on Twitter saying, oh, well, um, uh, that, you know, 80% of African-Americans, 80% of almost everybody thinks the term political correctness is a negative term. Um, but something like only about 30% of this sort of like top 8% of the, the, that they call the progressive activists mm-hmm. think it's a negative term. And I've seen a lot of people go like, well, they don't define political correctness in that. And, I, and I've heard this argument so much, I, I think it completely misses the point, um, that most of the population, overwhelming majority of the population hear PC and they're like, that's something bad. Um, there's a, then there's a tiny group that's like, well, that's not so bad. That actually sounds like that could be a good thing. That's, and it doesn't matter what you're filling in the blanks as meaning. You're hearing a term that everybody else hears as bad as actually being potentially good. And one of the things that the... Um, uh, the Hidden Tribe study found that was so interesting was that there was this, uh, they, they broke society up into about six different groups. And there was, um, you know, uh, and, and tried to figure out where they were together on different issues. And at one extreme, they had um, uh, what they call progressive activists, people who, you know, are really uh, into um, issues uh, of, uh, like what might be called sort of the cutting edge of social justice uh, work. And they found... Um, which comports with my experience that it was a very upper class um, uh, uh, group. It was the most upper class group. It was uh, most highly educated, but 
you know, not a surprise to me, having seen some of these trends start in San Francisco, the least um, uh, racially uh, diverse group of any group um, other than the most extreme right right wing group that was almost exclusively uh, exclusively white. And seeing it kind of as a problem that is more of sort of like a, a, a peculiar ruling class problem mm-hmm. <laughs> helps you at least have some hope that it, that, that, it, that it can be solved. Um, so definitely checking out the Hidden Tribes uh, study, I think it is is very worthwhile. It actually, it gave me some hope that there's a solution here. Um, but, you know. So, so the, this cohort, the progressive activists, this yep. is the same cohort that you're mainly focused on in the book yeah. that sees the overprotection, the the lack of free play, the scheduled time. Is this also the group that on campus is the source of a lot of calls for disinvitation, microaggression, policing, uh, trigger warnings, calls for censorship? Definitely the demographics are, 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 are the same. And one of the reasons why it's important for even skeptics to look at this is because there's always been a, a big disconnect between what upper class, ruling class people think the uh, poor and downtrodden need and want and what they actually do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of times in like 19th century sort of reformist movements, there was a sense of, well, we don't care what they actually want. We care about what they should want. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether it's people thinking they need more opera or they need bloody revolution, when you actually sometimes go go to actually ask ask the actual worker what they'd want, you know, it's like, I'd like Sunday off, <laughs> you know, like something much more, maybe some more leisure time. I'd like the bus to arrive on time. Yeah, yeah. So, so something much more practical and much more humble in a lot of cases. Uh, in a lot of cases, um, and so I, I think understanding that that um, since a lot of the um, sort of moral authority of what what you see for some of the um, uh, social justice act- activists on campus is that you know I speak for the multitudes. Um, you should not be so sure you really speak for the multitudes, particularly given how out of touch in a lot of cases, frankly, some of these institutions actually can be with the rest of the world. Cancel culture. Is there anything that you've learned from the book or that the book says that can speak to, I mean, I've only started hearing the phrase cancel culture in the past couple of months. Yeah. This like idea that certain people need to be canceled for, you know, in some cases, admittedly, major transgressions. In other cases, you know, taking the wrong side of a political debate. Yeah, um, cancel culture. You know, that, that's definitely a, a term that's relatively new to me, but not a phenomenon that's even slightly new. Um, mm, yeah, it, I mean, you've been dealing with professors who've been <laughs> who've been tried to be canceled since the beginning of your career. Yeah, you know, it's kind of and and what's funny is to to say something um, a prediction on which I was perfectly incorrect. Um, Will Creeley, the legal director of Fire, and I wrote a um, a, a, a big cover story for the now defunct Boston Phoenix back in 2006, mm-hmm. talking about this relatively new phenomenon of Facebook, <laughs> um, what is that? of people getting in trouble for what they posted on Facebook. And it was very early. So a lot of the first cases we saw of people getting in trouble for Facebook um, were people posting pictures of themselves smoking pot, you know, mm-hmm. and you had to be like, stop posting pictures of yourself doing illegal things, you know, on Facebook. Then they were um, uh, sort of like nasty little infighting incidents uh, followed. Um, there was one in the drama school of University of Tennessee, which I always thought was funny because, you know, it's drama. <laughs> um, but then they also, then they just became part of the ecosystem. But there was a there was a little sparkling moment when there was a, like, Miss Teen USA um, uh, lost her crown because she was, 
of you know they would find, find to be like um, erotic photos of her somewhere and then there was another like uh, you know Miss USA or something like that who lost her crown for another reason this all happened in the course of a couple of weeks and then by the third one it was like lewd bar pictures of <coughs> some one of these beauty queen people and society's reaction seemed to be like okay okay we're we've kind of had enough of this mm-hmm. And I had a glimmering moment of being like, okay, listen, if we're going to actually live in the society where we live so publicly, our culture is going to have to change to agree where we become, and this is where it gets incredibly wrong, more forgiving of people's failings. Um, If we know, for example, that people tend to be big drunks when they go to college, Mm -hmm. um, when we start seeing videos of that, we should should recognize that we always knew this, so be, let's be – um, uh, let, let's understand that we'd have to be tolerant of this stuff. And so I thought that actually increased awareness of what people are actually like would increase tolerance. And I think it felt like for a while it did, but then something happened and, and it seemed to happen very quickly. And people who, who are on Twitter talk about this. His first Twitter seemed to be a place where everybody was free to be weird, to be who they were. And then suddenly like the, um, the cancel culture, as we now call mm-hmm. it, like the, the the really strong polarization, the really sort of group formations mm-hmm. got really nasty. And that's how you get books like um, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by yeah. Ron Johnson or John Ross. John Ross. Which I always get wrong. Fa- fabulous book. Um, and that's, you know, when we made our movie, uh, Can We Take a Joke? It was about this burgeoning kind of like nasty I'm going to ruin your life um, for what you. So ahead of its time, really. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> All you have to do is look at the most recent Chappelle stuff. I mean, that's what he's talking about now, a lot of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And the um, so it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I really hope it will. Yeah. Is there anything else that you think is worth touching on before we close up here with, the, you know, the review here of the one-year anniversary of Coddling? Um, you know, it's one of these things where I'm – I really would love to hear from people who read it. Uh, you know, feel free to write. You know, so to speak at the fire.org. We're trying to do more to reach out to high school students um, to teach them about free speech. That's actually a good point. Yeah. Um, Constitution Day is coming up. Oh, yeah. What yeah. a great opportunity to utilize, if you're an educator, FIRE's new First Amendment curriculum. Yep. Which yep. Uh, you can find on our website under our, the our resources first, tab. Our First Amendment curriculum, also our videos. We're trying, to, we have a graphic novel now. Um, I'm working on one of my own, you know, <laughs> at some point. Um, yeah, th- th- those, I, I, write us because we know that um, uh, uh, th- there are people out there who want to do something about uh, about the situation uh, for young people and for uh, on, co- on college campuses, but also in, say, K-12. through And we want to use the opportunity while people are paying attention to this to try to make some real change. Yeah. So email us at so to speak at the fire.org. I promise you I see all emails. Um, until next time, Greg, I uh, appreciate you coming back on the show, talking about the, the book, and I urge all of our listeners out there, you haven't picked up the book yet you can now get it cheaper it's in paperback you can find it barnes and noble and amazon so greg thanks so much for coming on the show and thanks for writing this book yeah thanks for having me all right this podcast is hosted and produced by me nico perino and recorded and edited by my colleague aaron reese if you like the podcast please consider leaving us a review on itunes or wherever else you get your podcasts we can also find more information about the show on facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast and also on twitter at free speech talk again our email address is so to speak at the fire.org we love to hear feedback and until next time thanks again for listening 